Who is God? At the beginning of the book of Exodus, surely that's the question the people had to wrestle with. Because they were a nation of slaves waiting on God to show up and make good on the promises he made. For God had vowed to the founder of these enslaved people, a man called Abraham, that his offspring would be a great nation who would bless the earth and dwell with him in a land called Canaan. But Abraham had been dead for centuries, and his children weren't a nation, they were in captivity. And while they were growing in number, so was their slave master's cruel activity. So who is God when you've experienced nothing but 400 years of his passivity? Were God's promises fake? Was his faithfulness flawed? Or maybe all the stories they heard were nothing but frauds? This is the question of Exodus. Who is God? To answer this, God raises up a deliverer, a man named Moses, and discloses who he is by speaking out of a bush engulfed in flames. God tells Moses who he is by God telling Moses his name. Who is God? God is I am. As in, I am with you. I am faithful, I am listening, I am able. So as Israel was bringing all their questions to the table, like who is God, where is he, will he come, does he see, God was answering all of these by being I am to his people. I am was with them when he heard and responded to Israel's cries, and when he performed wonders and miracles before Pharaoh's eyes. I Am was with them when the plagues began their takeover of every false Egyptian god, and when he provided a way for his people to be passed over by blood. I Am was with them when he moved Pharaoh's heart to allow the people to flee, and when he saved Israel and punished Egypt by parting and closing the Red Sea. I Am was with them through the wilderness, in fire and in cloud, and when with manna and quail he fed the grumbling crowds. I Am was with them on the mountain, when he made his glory and power prominent, when he called the people his own and made with them a covenant. I Am was with them in the tabernacle, when he gave Israel a tent in which they could dwell together, and when he filled that tent with his glory, so much so that even Moses could not enter. I Am was with them because that's who God is. A God who enters into our story, working behind, among, through, above, everything in the world, just to show us his glory. Who is God? God is, I am. And no matter who you are, this is a question you have to wrestle with. Who has God shown himself to be in the pages of Exodus? 
because the whole world has been in Israel's position. We've all been slaves to broken hearts and evil systems. We are all oppressed by death and will fall under its final opposition. And so, surely we've all wondered, who is God? Will he fix this wicked condition? And what Exodus shows us is that God answers our petition. Because the I Am who rescued his people from Egypt rescued the whole world in the person of Jesus. Jesus was with us by becoming human as a response to our cries. Like Moses stepped out of Egypt, this new deliverer stepped out of heaven and walked by our side. Jesus was with us because the true plagues of sin and death had made their takeover. So Jesus became sin and was pinned under death so these plagues might pass us over. Jesus was with us by falling under the waves to open a path of dry ground so that we who deserve to be lost in the water like Egypt, instead, like Israel, can be found. Jesus is with us today in our deepest hungers and hardest strife. For through his spirit and word, he provides for us like he provided for Israel. But this time, we get the bread of life. Jesus is with us as God was on the mountain with Moses. But instead of man climbing up to find God, Jesus came down and found us. Jesus was and is and will be with us. Because as his body was opened, so was the tabernacle's tent. So he can make us and the world his dwelling, both now and when he comes again. Who is God? Who has he revealed himself to be in the pages of Exodus? He is I am. He is with us. God is our rescuer. God is Jesus. So Father God, we pray that we would be captivated by the life of Jesus that we would never stop our pursuit of him as he earnestly pursues us. May your spirit fall and may your word come alive and may it never leave us the same again. God, we need to hear from you. Lord, we need you to change our lives and Lord, we need your leadership. So God, would you come? Lord, that is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The end of Genesis ends strangely. God promises a family he would take care of them, and he does. Joseph, a son of of promise, brings his family to a, a land in the middle of the desert that is fruitful. And at the end of that passage, we see his father die. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. With a family in a place that was not their home, rescued, and a father that is now dead. And then the book of Exodus begins. And it doesn't begin with the family just having a great time, although we hear that God has prospered them. He has grown the family. They have seen God do amazing things in their life. But as we read the first part of Exodus, in particular Exodus chapter 1 verse 6, it says this, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. 
So this Joseph that was promised is now gone. It's a strange way to end a book and a strange way to start a book with death. And then it says this, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly and multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was full of them. Remember where they are. They're not at their home. They're in Egypt. But God has blessed them and they're fruitful and they've multiplied and there's a lot of them. And in verse 8 it says this, a new king who did not know about Joseph, remember the son of promise, came to power in Egypt and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. But but Fithim and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, what happened? The more they multiplied and spread out. This is amazing. And spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. That's how we start the book of Exodus. The, the promised children of God that God gets them into a promised land in the middle of the worst drought in history. He brings them to the most fruitful plain of Egypt. He's, he's given them somebody from their own ranks that's a ruler and an authority. God has blessed them, and now we start Exodus with, it's flipped. They're now slaves in the place they were. That's how Exodus begins, and, and we could sit there and think, well, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? Have you ever said that in your mind? Why is God allowing bad things to happen to me? I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't been wronged. I'm a good person. Here's the problem with that. None of us are good. Scripture declares we're all kind of morally corrupt. There's something in us that can't seek God. And so here's what happens. After time has come and, and everything has shifted in their lives, the Israelites begin to do something that they have forgotten how to do. Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 starts by saying this, after a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out and their cry for help because the difficult labor ascended to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God makes this promise, remember as we watched the video last week, that said that God made an amazing promise, not because he had to, not because he was forced to, but because he was willing to make a promise that he would take care of these people. And in Exodus chapter 2, he holds on to that promise, and it says this, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. When did God notice the Israelites' labor? It was long before this time, wasn't it? God knew what was on their hearts, and God knew that they would not turn to him until the labor became forceful enough. Years went by, and they simply didn't turn to God. They complained, but they never went to him. They they grumbled, but they had to find someone to grumble against. How angry they must have been against Pharaoh, but yet they never went to the mercies of God. And the moment they do, God moves. God moves. And the book of Exodus is all about God's movement. 
It's a moment that he shows himself on behalf of a people that don't deserve him. By the way, there has never been and never will be a people group that deserve God. We deserve our own selfish sins. We deserve what it looks like when you and I turn our faces from a holy God. We deserve what we paid into. Uh, you got to think of it like this. If you and I want to earn money, we have to put it in something that earns money. This is what sin does. Sin is depositing our selfish ways into the bank and hoping that we reap something better. But if you're like me and you've seen it on TV, when you put away something that spoils and you leave it and you come back, it doesn't become edible. It becomes worse. It starts to grow things that you never anticipated. And that's what sin does in the life of people. It grows worse, not better. And so God waited. You imagine this story from God's side. He, he makes a plan for his people in the midst of a drought. And he brings all of his people into the best part of Egypt. And he gets them there and they quit focusing on him like that. A whole generation comes and goes, and they have forgotten how God brought them there. They're complaining. They're under pressure. And in that moment, they finally go, God, where are you? And he goes, I'm right here. I've always been right here. That's the same for you and I. No matter how far you and I have sinned, no, no matter how long we've let it fester and spoil, God is always ready. He is always ready for you and I. He is always anticipating a homecoming. And it's never further than, than you think. When we cry out to God, he doesn't go, I'll be there soon. That's what we like to think he's like. That there's no way that a holy God could hang around us. And so we hide our face and we say, but God, you don't know anything about me. You don't know how wrong I've been. And God goes, you don't know how holy I am and how good I am. This is the story of God. Exodus reveals how God desires so richly to spend time with you and I. I mean, it, it is so rich. Exodus gets its name from one of its largest acts. It gets its name from one of its largest acts, the Exodus. We're about to get to that here in a second. We get it because we get to see God's hand move. We get to see something occur that is going to echo until the cross. We get to see God do an amazing work that's a foreshadowing of what he would do ultimately with his son. So here it is. John Piper has a great thought on this. It says, Exodus is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament, to which subsequent revelation points to again and again and again. Exodus shows something that God is going to do time and time again in everybody's life if we would focus our lives on him. So God reaches into a man that he created, a man named Moses, who should be a dead man multiple times over. He's born at the wrong time. The children of Israel had multiplied so much that the current king, the, the ruler, declares that all the firstborn sons should be killed. We should knock down the population number, and the only way to do that is to take out the boys. But there is one that was saved. What's more is God orchestrates him to fall into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter as her son. He knows who he is. 
He knows that he's an Israelite. He knows that he is one of slaves. But he grows up in, in Egypt's courts. One day as he's walking through, he sees a slave driver harming one of his own. And he decides in his heart, I can take care of this. And so he kills the Egyptian slave owner. It says then that Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. And so he runs. And he runs and he runs. And he finds himself in a wilderness. In wilderness, he he finds a life. He comes under the wings of a good man, a priest. He marries. He begins to shepherd. And he thinks his life is complete. And maybe this is your story that you have faced something and you've run and you think your life is complete, but still you have God calling on you. And this particular day, as Moses is wandering through the desert with his sheep, there is a burning bush. But the crazy thing about it is this bush doesn't burn up, just maintains, strikes his curiosity. So he comes closer and he has an encounter with God in which he says, Moses, take off your shoes because the ground you're walking on is holy ground because where the presence of God is is holiness. Here's the problem. You and I can't like this story. We're judgmental people. Moses is a murderer. Moses is a what? But God can use anyone for his purpose. Moses was a murderer. In our storyline, Moses should get the justice of God. And that is, Moses should die. But that's not what God wanted to do with Moses. You see, you may think your story is too gone. You've done too much. You said the wrong things enough. You have acted the wrong way. But God is God and he is holy. And he's going to use us for his purpose if we will be available. And what does God tell Moses to do? (laughs) He tells him to go back to Egypt. That's a place he has a murder rap at. That's a place that if he goes back, he could die instantly. That's a place that if he goes back, he knows he's going to see the faces of the slaves that he ran away from. And he just simply gives him every opportunity to tell him no. But God, I don't speak well. Uh, But God, you don't know who I am really. But God, I don't even know who you are. You're just some dude talking in a bush. When I go and tell my people that you sent me, how do I tell them that it's you? And so in Exodus 3.14, we get God's name. I am. He tells him, go and take my name with you and tell them I am has sent me. And it worked. So God sends Moses and his brother Aaron and they go into Pharaoh. And if you've read the accounts of the plagues, it's, it's horrendous. I mean, blood turned to water, flies, frogs, boils, hailstones. I mean, you name it, it's awful. But that's not the worst one. Finally, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, God wants you to let his people go so they can worship him. But if you don't, I want to tell you what's going to happen next. God is going to pass over and kill every firstborn son in each household. 
You've been warned. God gives instructions to his people. Take the blood of a lamb and to go over the doorposts of the home. And by that blood, they would get the covering of God. And that night as the Spirit moved among the people, it passed over the houses of the children of Israel that were obedient to him. I want you to know something. Anyone that was not obedient, their firstborn died. And in every household that didn't, they lost. It says that weeping was heard throughout the whole country. With this, Pharaoh tells them, get out and don't come back. But before you go, bless me. So the children began to leave. By all accounts, it says that there was some 600,000 men. Which would mean that perhaps this is a movement of a million plus people out of the land of Egypt. This is no small movement There were no small U-Hauls. They gathered and left. As they were leaving, they asked the Egyptians for gold and things like that. And by this, Scripture says they plundered Egypt. (laughs) And they left. And as they were leaving, Pharaoh didn't have it. Scripture says God hardens his heart. And I believe this, that your heart will always be hardened if you allow it to be. And Pharaoh says, I can't let them go. That's a loss. Do you know that they don't mark losses in Egypt? As much as they've dug up of Egypt, they never see a loss. Always wins. Because gods can't lose. And Pharaohs considered themselves gods. And so they chase. But see, they didn't realize there was a good defense in the way. God shows up as a a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And when the Egyptians roll up on the Israelites, they can't even get close. God tells Moses, I want you to walk up to the water. Hold your staff over the top and I'm going to part the waters. It never had been done. And it says that God parts it, but doesn't just part the waters. He leaves dry ground below. You ever walked next to a lake? or a seashore, if you stand there long enough, what happens? It fills in with some water, right? Because where there's water, dry ground can't be. Just imagine a million plus people walking through dry ground where water used to be. It never once says that they walk through mud. A million plus people all on dry ground because this was no ordinary moment. Once the Israelites are through, God pulls himself up from presence, and the Egyptians can see the Israelites have walked through. And if they can do it, so can the Egyptians, they thought. And so they pursued. And in the midst of their pursuit, they start to realize something the ground's not dry, the water is not holding like it was. And God destroyed the Egyptian army. Saved his people. What can we learn from that? I mean, certainly those of you that have been in Bible study all your life, you, you could teach that. You could go through it a million times. But let me tell you what I see in it. God's going to take care of his people. It may not look like you and I think. 
It may not look like our timing, and it may not look how we would want. No one planned to walk through on dry grounds that day. They didn't have a plan of escape. In fact, they were fearful. I mean, how many times do we see in Exodus the children of Israel turn to Moses, a man like them, and say, why'd you bring us out here just to die? Why'd you bring us out here? We should have died in Egypt. They had tombs. Why'd you bring us out here to miss a meal? We had figs in Egypt. They had forgotten already that they cried out to a holy God, that they couldn't take it any longer. And so God saves them. If that was the end of the story, Exodus would be a very short book. You'd probably read it more. But Exodus doesn't stop there, does it? Exodus begins to tell us how God wants to talk with us on a daily basis. How God expects us to act. And so we, we get it that God desires relationship with his people. But they must be holy like God is. So he gives them a way to be holy. It's not easy. And frankly, I don't know that you and I would do it. I mean, he gives them such a long list of rules. He gives them a way to go to the temple and how to sacrifice. And through all of that, we start to go, Lord, it's just too much. And he goes, I agree. You can't even begin to understand how rich Jesus is going to be for those that don't have to do this. We need exodus in our lives because we don't get it, how rich Jesus really is. Because we didn't live in a day where he wasn't actively pursuing us with his blood. Just imagine for a moment that you and I can't have a relationship with God unless we kill a lamb. Unless we do the ritual acts. Unless we go through the priest. I think we'd all act like Israelites. Do I really have to do this? (sighs) This is so difficult. Why can't I just go back to Egypt? I mean, I had to work, but at least it was by water. Out here there is. Did you know there's no water, Moses? You're the one that brought us here. Check the GPS. They just didn't get it. It's going to take a generation wandering in the desert before they can seek God the way they should. It's sad. That a holy God who wants to connect with his people, who has rescued his people, who loves his people, would never pursue him like he hoped they would. It's devastating. But God gives a path for holiness and completion in him. Why do we have Ten Commandments? We have Ten Commandments because it's the right way to spend time with God. If we could just hold on to the Ten Commandments, we would look like Jesus was real to us. But I can just tell you my own life, and maybe you would get testimony, we struggle with ten. Why didn't you just give us two? And the New Testament, he does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments, and against them there is no law. See, we struggle with those. So we can't even do two. But God, two is difficult. But God made a path. And God still has a path. And he still 
demands holiness in us. There's still a path, and he still demands holiness. So Exodus is strange to us. And I think the reason it's strange to us, and most of the first five books of the Bible are strange to us because Jesus completed those. And so they're difficult for us to hold on to. How do we rectify that we don't celebrate the Passover? How do we, how do we know that we shouldn't be? Well, we have to wait until Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. You see, the path and our holiness is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in him. All of Exodus points to a future person that would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb for us. We needed Jesus because we couldn't get through Exodus on our own. So why should we read it? Why should we read Exodus at all? Well, let's look at it really closely. The Israelites cried out for a redeemer. And Titus 2.14 tells us this, that Jesus redeems us. I hope that you'll go and spend some time with these passages at the end of today. But it says that Jesus is our redeemer, that he chooses to redeem us. And I think it's still the same way that we must cry out to him for redemption. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. God told his people they needed a Passover lamb. And John 1.29 says that Jesus is the lamb of God. To do the sacrifice, you'd have had to have an unblemished lamb. And to know an unblemished lamb, they'd have to live intimately close to your family. You couldn't let them just graze with the rest. They had to be special. You had to check it to make sure it was perfect. And then when the day of sacrifice would come, the father would take the lamb into the temple. He would put his hands on the lamb and the priest would take it by the head and it would slit its throat. And the father would stay there as the life went out of this lamb that he had been close with at their house. Until it died. That way he could feel the death of the lamb. At this point, the priest would disassemble the lamb for sacrifice. And the father would have stayed and waited. I just want you to imagine with me a household like this. The family's preparing for their sacrificial lamb. They find it. They bring it in close like a a dog in our society, if you will. They would know it. The kids would know it. And the day of sacrifice would come. And the father would take the lamb and walk it with other dads all over. And they would talk about how this lamb was going to pave the way for their sins. After a while, the dad would come home. No lamb. And the questions must have come, where's the lamb? And the father would say, the lamb is gone. It paid for us. There would come a day for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever would 
believe in him would not simply perish, but would have eternal life. God took his perfect lamb, and he put the sins of all of us, as Isaiah tells us, upon him. And by his blood, we are saved. He is our Passover lamb. As God sees us, because of the blood of Christ, he can pass over us. Jesus is the perfect lamb. And in Exodus, as they heard this, they didn't have any comprehension of what the lamb of God would look like. But praise God, we grew up in a day where we do. The Israelites needed a path of deliverance from Pharaoh. Like I said earlier, John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus is the path. While they're in the wilderness, they come twice to Moses, once to tell him that they're hungry, and the next to tell him that they're thirsty. You see, God knew what they would need. He just wanted to see if they would turn to him for it, but they didn't. They turned to Moses. All along, these people, instead of going to a God who is dwelling with them, because he never leaves them. When they're in the wilderness, his presence goes with them. When they finally set up the temple, God's presence dwells there. Like the presence of God is in the wilderness, in that tent down the road. It's powerful. Like literally God is there. And still they go, hey, Moses, so why don't we have food out here? Hey, Moses, why don't we have meat out here? Hey, Moses, why don't we have water out here? Hey, Moses, why are we wandering in the wilderness out here? Hey, Moses, why is your brother the priest? Hey, Moses, why are you the leader? Hey, Moses, hey, Moses, hey, Moses. And God is right there. So, when Israelites ask for bread and water in John 3:35, in the midst of a festival, Jesus stands among the crowd and he says to them, if, if you'll come unto me, you'll never be hungry again, and you'll never thirst again. Today, we're declaring way too many times, hey Moses, hey Moses. Hey, church, hey, pastor, hey, husband, hey, wife, hey, kids, hey, televangelist, hey, everybody. Why? When God is right there. When Jesus comes and when he dies on the cross and when he raises from the grave, he tells the people, I have got to go so I can leave behind the helper, the Holy Spirit. And you're going to get to see things you've never seen before. And yet we live in a day and in a time where there's way too much, hey, Moses, and way too little, hey, Lord. I want to ask you to do me a favor. We're about to turn the tide of our church richly starting tomorrow. I'm going to ask that you as family here at our church and our community here, 
starts your work week with us on Mondays by fasting breakfast from now until Jesus comes. That every Monday we would begin our work week with focusing on him. That for Monday mornings we would spend our times focusing our lives and attention on Jesus Christ. That you would go to work hungry for food but filled with Jesus. And men, I'm going to ask you to take a second step. I believe this with all my heart. If the men of God will rise and take their place, the world is going to see the hand of God. So, at 6.30 on Monday mornings, starting tomorrow, men who can, this door right here to my left is called door number five. It's going to be unlocked starting at 6.30. And I'm going to ask you as men come, if you're able, and spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long you have before you have to head to work. And you would come here and you would kneel and pray with us. Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, turn from their wicked ways, and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. I want God to hear from us at Quell Creek. And you know what's funny? He's been talking to us this whole time, and we could have missed him. Not today. We are no longer wilderness people. We have been saved by the blood of Christ. Our Passover lamb our rescuer, our redeemer, our bread, our water. He is alive in us, and the world should know it. And they will now. Let's seek the face of God. Join us as we seek his face tomorrow morning, and from there on out, let's seek the face of God together. Because you know what? One day there will be another exodus. One day our Jesus will return. And on that day he will take his bride to be with him. And what will be left will be devastation. And I want to go with him. And I want you to as well. Do you know Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior or is he just somebody you've heard about in Scripture? Is he someone that you put your trust in, that you've given your sin over to, and have accepted the fullness of Jesus Christ? Or is he somebody you just learned about in VBS as a kid? Today is your day to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, saving you from your sin and leading your life. Today, you should know Jesus Christ. What we do every Sunday here is we have a time we call Invitation. And that's what it is. It's an invitation to focus for just a few minutes on Jesus Christ. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next few minutes to really pay attention to what he's saying to you today. We do that in a couple of ways. Myself and a couple other men will be down here to just greet you, to pray with you, to counsel alongside you. More than that, we give you opportunity just to come and kneel together by yourself or with a group. We've challenged our church 
to not let our students and children lead, but to have men come and pray together, women to come together and pray, because we believe that when we pray together, strength happens. So that's what you're about to see. We're going to stand. We're going to sing a song here in a minute after I pray. And you're going to see people moving. Don't be alarmed. Come join them. Maybe today you need to be prayed for. Something's going on in your life that you don't know what to do next. And it is not okay to go alone. It's not. It's not how God created you. It's not how God created me. We're meant to have community. And we believe this is a church where community happens. So maybe that's what you need in your life. You need a church home. Come let us know. Maybe today it's that you need to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's not a better decision on planet Earth than that. And today is your day. Come and let us know. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to have our time of decisioning. God, thank you so much for this moment of invitation, Lord, where we can invite you to speak over us. So, God, we pray for those in this room, God, that they would encounter you, and, Lord, that they would know that you're doing something in their life. Lord, we pray that people would come to know you as Savior and Lord, Lord. Lord, too often we go it alone. We feel like we can make it through our wildernesses just fine and only to find out we've been walking in circles for years and we need a Savior. God, may we see that you made a way through Jesus Christ that we could have a relationship with the God who made everything. That's powerful. And Lord, thank you that you're in my life. Lord, and I ask, Lord, you'd speak over the hearts in this room. God, that anybody and everybody would know that you are Jesus Christ who saves them. Lord, I pray that your presence would fall. And Lord, that we would get to experience your presence today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.